Okay, so welcome everyone to a very special edition of the Neither Free Nor Fair Anti-Political Economy Forum podcast series from the United uh, from the University of Washington, the University of Washington. I'm Nicholas Witschok, a producer of these podcasts, and I'm joined today by Morgan Wack, who is co-producer. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Nick. Yes, we have a different podcast or a different format for today's podcast. We've decided to do a live on tape episode. Can you explain to us what that means? Of course. So it means that we have invited the participants and affiliates uh, of the Political Economy Forum to join us here for a live Q&A session. Uh, we already have participants in our virtual town hall here with us. Um, others who will join us soon, uh, hopefully, and uh, some who submitted questions ahead of time. And uh, while we're currently live, we're also taping this episode, which we'll post to both podcast series on their anchor pages, which you, you can find uh, anywhere that we uh, publish our podcasts, which is pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. Absolutely. It also means that Nick and I are going to be playing moderators today. And we're joined for this discussion by forum co-founders and regular podcast hosts, Professors James Long and Victor Minaldo. Hello, James. Hi, Nick and Morgan. Thanks for taking the reins today. Hi, Victor. Hey, guys. Thank you. All right, so we have some ground rules for everyone, just so everyone is clear. Um, so any participants in the session that are here with us today can either raise their hands uh, with a question that Morgan and I will call on you then, uh, so you can then ask it out loud. If you don't wanna do that, you can also chat it to us and we will read it for you. Um, so we're recording with audio only, so you don't need to activate your video. Uh, we also have questions that were submitted ahead of time, as I said um by members and friends and uh yeah people who are following the forum so we'll possibly read some of them uh hopefully if we get to it uh so the general theme and topic of uh today's discussion will be um yeah the election and its aftermath the biden administration's first month in office and the future of the republican party as well as uh, the role of big tech in political life. Um, yeah, but important for everyone to know is that Victor and James have not yet seen any of the questions. Um, so, and they, I mean, they've also assured us that anything is fair game. So within reason, you can really just uh, ask them whatever you want. Um, right, so please raise your hands or check your questions if you want to. And yeah, we'll get going. Perfect. So we want to get to as many questions as possible. So I'm going to start off with the first question that was sent to us, and then we're going to go to the audience. So feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. Let's start off with this question from Nancy from Colorado. And she asks a broad question on, on what issue, Victor and James, do you believe Biden is going to stumble on first? And we can well, start with Victor, maybe. Well, no, let's start with James. Take it away, James. <laughs> okay. Well, the obvious thing is, Much you know, I think he really put the 2022 election on the line by promising the vaccine rollout will hit every adult by late May. I think if he's not able to deliver on that, that would be a huge stumble, um, you know, and, and, and if it were delayed or if it gets messed up or new variants, um, the, the vaccine doesn't work for new variants. I think that's going to be a huge stumble. What do you think, Victor? It could be economics. It could be that the stimulus package doesn't have its purported effect. It could be that it overshoots and there's too much inflation and then the Fed has to raise interest rates and there goes the recovery before it really gets started. So I don't know, economic policy perhaps. Okay, and so what do you think is gonna be the problem then? Like how, what would stumbling look like? I guess stumbling would look like the lack of the rocket ship uh, reaching orbit, reaching uh, escape velocity. And again, it could be that there's not enough stimulus. So, 
you know, all this talk of pent up demand doesn't materialize, or it could be too much demand and overheating, a fear of inflation that drives up interest rates because the Fed is independent and marches according to its own drum. So those two extremes, I suppose, you'd want something in the middle, a sweet spot in the middle, and there could be a failure to uh, to do that. And this, the measure of the stumble will be whether or not they lose uh, seats in the House and uh, right. lose seats in the Senate. So that would be the measure of it. That's how we would know. And they, they'll they probably lose seats regardless of how well he does. Right. So I think related here, Amos from Washington sent in a question uh, ahead of time asking, so what do you think about the Biden administration's proposed minimum wage increases? And if you say that economics is possibly an area where Biden could stumble, what does that mean exactly? Do you think um, if the economic recovery recovery does not get on its way, is it immediately going to alienate part of the Democratic Party or what is going to happen? James, do you want to take the latter first? Because that's more organic in terms of the fit with the first question. Then we could have a debate about the minimum wage. I mean, the minimum wage is like the most controversial topic in economics, so I'm happy to cede it to people who who care more about it. I think it's sort of a ridiculous conversation to have. It doesn't really interest me, and I don't think it's that important. Um, but symbolically, I think it matters a lot to the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, Biden is probably happy that it's really not in the COVID relief right now. And um, symbolically, I think you know, it matters a lot to sort of play to the left at the same time as placating the center. It is a broadly popular policy, but I think the reality of what the economic shocks could be on employment, should the, the minimum wage be raised, I mean, basically doubled nationwide, I think gives a lot of reason for somebody like Biden to, to be scared of, of doing something that ambitious because he doesn't know what the economic outcome of it would be um, in, in the short term. And it could very well hurt him or hurt his reelection possibility. I could talk about the economics of the minimum wage, but I don't want to bore people. And I have kind of a polemical point of view that's center left, but contrarian. I don't know. Nick, what do you think? Well, let, let us hear it. Well, first of all, if we double the minimum wage across the whole country could lead to inflation pressures because Arkansas and California are two totally different markets, labor markets and consumption markets. So I don't think it's a smart idea. I think the minimum wage is best left at the state and local level. And my larger point on the minimum wage, it's a solution to what problem. The problem is stagnant wages. A better solution would be to raise productivity because the lion's share of wages are determined by a worker's marginal productivity. And there are way better ways of doing that than the minimum wage. In fact, the minimum wage might work against raising workers' productivity. Uh, so I, there's a lot of um, countries that are social democratic, if you will, in Scandinavia that don't have minimum wages at all. And it's because they know how to sustain high productivity levels through education and through uh, skill enhancement and through other measures that are much better at actually raising real wages. Well, that makes sense. Uh, but I mean, as James says, right, it's a it's a very popular policy. So it sounds like Biden will, it's going to be hard for him not to disappoint at least some people. Well, I um, think what would be interesting is if there was an, actually a, a serious discussion about this with the Republicans and in, in trying to find um, a more moderate course that would potentially raise it, not, not to $15, but maybe to something like $10 or $11 and then have it be 
adjusted mm. for, uh, based on cost of living across various states. I know some Republicans have tried to have that conversation and it's not really there yet, but that to me seems like it would be a very productive avenue forward. And he could probably get Republican votes on board if he did that. Well, that would make sense. Uh, Linda is asking a question here. Uh, why, when Republicans held the presidency, House and Senate, were they so much more effective at furthering their agendas than the Democrats have been? What agenda? <laughs> they don't have an agenda. I mean, the, the, the agenda was the tax cut and they did that and that was it. All the other agenda items that I think were big ticket things that you remember from the Trump presidency were the judges and what he did with executive action. They couldn't overturn Obamacare. Um, you know, he didn't really pull out of wars the way he said he would. I, I don't think he really did anything. It was four years with essentially nobody at the helm of government other than what he was able to do through executive action and I guess the tax cut and the judges. Thank you, James. I'm going to ask the second part of uh, Linda's question to Victor. Uh, is it too soon to tell then, or should we be happy with the rollbacks Biden has so far made or so far achieved through executive actions, as, as James intimates, um, or are expectations potentially too high for Trump's transformative change uh, through the Biden administration, Victor? Well, I'm not an expert at all when it comes to executive orders, but it seems to me that they are um, fearic victories and that they can be reversed. And it's really hard to get a lot of maneuvering room when you don't have legislative support for things. So on average, I just I don't see how executive orders are really the panacea that uh, President Biden or before and President Trump intend them to be or to go back to some of what James was saying. A lot of it is symbolic and maybe it moves the needle with hardcore uh, constituents. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe some executive orders are better than others, but the fact that they can be reversed so easily, mm -hmm. and they seem to be skin deep, doesn't bode well for any transformative change. I would love to right. get anyone else's views on that. Though. Victor, what do you think is going to happen with immigration policy? Because I think for a long time, we've thought that um, immigration, you know, the, the country was sort of ready to move forward on immigration policy. It almost happened under Bush with the gang of eight or six or whatever they were called. But now I'm getting the sense that actually trying to do something bold on immigration policy that requires legislative action in Congress may actually be getting harder and the nation is moving further to the right because of the situation at the border, um, of you know, areas of the country where the Democrats want to win elections, Arizona, Texas, Florida, and those voters are not moving, you know, in the direction of, of radical immigration reform. In fact, they it seems like they're kind of moving in the opposite direction. Well, a big thing that President Biden has done is rhetorically change the conversation. That's a big thing because it sends a signal to immigrants. It sends a signal to uh, Biden's constituents. So that could itself be transformative. Um, I mean, it could lead to a crisis if it provokes more caravans and the like. Uh, but I think that's been a big change. This contradicts exactly what I just said about executive orders saying they're toothless. I think the the uh, symbolism has mattered a lot. The poo-pooing of the border wall, looking at refugee policy and the like. Um, so as an opening salvo, I, I do think it matters. Um, because these are people and their actions are strategic and they take their cues sometimes from uh, what American presidents say. I know folks in Latin America definitely do when they're thinking of immigrating uh, to the United States. 
That's a good place to transition. I think one of the main ways and one of the more contentious ways that the Democrats could possibly get around having to pass so many executive orders is using the filibuster. And we have a question on that from Jim from St. Louis who asks, uh, from the long view, is there any good reason the Democrats shouldn't do away with the filibuster? What's your say on that, James? Oh, they absolutely should, but I don't think they won't. I mean, uh, Manchin says he won't, uh, but they absolutely should. And I know Victor disagrees with that, but Victor's wrong. <laughs> Victor, why I'm, are you wrong? I mean, first of all, let me let me let me add something. By the way, the Senate is so is so basically is a malapportioned body, right? Half of the Senate represents something like ten percent of the U.S. population. The 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 interest of very low population rural states is already way overrepresented in the Senate. So they already get basically a veto uh, regardless. Um, so, so I think the idea that then there should be an extra veto on top of the veto on top of the veto that's 60 that works sometimes and not others is ridiculous. This is not how legislation is done. You know, you win a majority, you pass legislation. You don't have a majority, you don't get to block legislation. That's the reality of how uh, these institutions work. You guys want to hear why I'm wrong or should we move? Yeah, well, yeah Victor, we're tell them why you're now. wrong. Oh, don't want to overturn precedent. Oh, don't go in a new direction. Then then you're, you know, you don't know what avenues it opens. Yeah, I do know what avenues it opens. It means when the Democrats are the majority, then they don't get to use the filibuster either. Right. Well, I guess I just if we're going to have a Westminster system, and what I mean by that is a majoritarian system, like a parliamentary system, where if you have the most seats in the legislature, you get to be a dictator, let's say. Um Elected dictatorship is what you call that system. If that's the system we're going to have, then I just think we need the rest of what goes along with that. And because we're not that kind of system, we're a, a constitutional republic with the president and checks and balances and two chambers. I do yeah, like- We already the, have divided. We already have the possibility of a divided government. We already have checks and balances across two different, uh, across executive and legislative branches that are separate from each other. So we're not a Westminster system. That's not a dictatorship. Right, but I mean, getting rid of the filibuster is closer to a Westminster system. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying the opposite. What no, I'm trying it's to not. <laughs> because the, the things that keep us from that are already in place. I guess I just don't like the idea of one party ramming everything through instead of seeking compromise, because I think it's bad on many fronts. They do have to see compromise, Victor. They have to, the Senate has to compromise with the House, which has to compromise with the White House. And right now, all three of those are barely controlled by the same party. But in most U.S. history, at least post-World War II, that's usually not the case. They're always having to compromise. Do you have Correct. a concrete? And I think I, my last bid here would be the shadow of the filibuster induces compromise um, because it's an off the path, just to use jargon. It's a, it's a thing that you fear. So therefore you compromise your positions to start with, or you try to see common ground. This is a very strange time where it doesn't seem like that's happening. And maybe the incentives are so skewed that um, folks care more about being primary than they do care about passing legislation or whatever. And they don't have the incentives to sit uh, with other people at the table and compromise. But my fear is that getting rid of it will totally destroy any scintilla of pressure to compromise that there is already. That, that's my fear. And so I just want to step back from the brink and I prefer more pluralism and compromise rather than less. And it just seems like one of the tools that makes that happen, or at least did when things were normal before Trump, let's say, or more normal before 
polarization got really bad. Let's say going back to Clinton's second term, uh, President George W. Bush, President Obama, and then obviously President Trump and Biden. So maybe moving uh, over a little bit, um, James, what do you think will the Biden administration's role be in promoting democracy abroad? How do you think foreign policy will change? Well, thus far, you know, they have sort of actually floated that as a central tenet to what their foreign policy will be, um, in part because I think um, Biden, is, you know, very much understands the reputational hit that the United States has taken and how the world views the United States over the last four years. Um, and so they have explicitly sort of, you know, said that they want to make democracy promotion again, a, a core tenant of their foreign policy, you know, which goes back to uh, 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 George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton as, you know, once the, the Soviet Union fell, that became a very important tenet of American foreign policy in the 1990s. Trump abandoned that. Um, but I think also, which is very intelligent and smart on his, on his part is, I think he believes that if he sort of realigns American values with those that it has, uh, you know, adopted, in, in the post-World War II era, that that will also help on a number of other multi, multilateral things that he's trying to uh, achieve, whether it's you know, vaccine rollout in developing countries, climate change, things like that. So I think it's gonna become kind of a core tenant. And I think it's, it's important that that's true for, um, uh, for the United States, regardless of who's president. Have we think, see, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, do you think that in the recent backing down on uh, promises to go after MBS in Saudi Arabia is kind of a one-off then? Or do you think that's more of a problematic issue in the long run that you might not be able to deal with some of these Middle Eastern countries? Well, I don't buy that he backed down. I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, we don't know, or I don't know what the, what the call was with the, with the, the king. Um, we do know that there were sanctions placed on certain members. And I also suspect that there are additional tools that Blinken, the new secretary of state, will not be afraid to use. Um, but this is one of those things where you sort of don't want to bring the hammer down all at once in response. You want to be able to kind of coax and cajole the Saudis to to potentially improve their human rights with you know, the threat of things in the future by basically sounding the alarm now, but not necessarily bringing the hammer down. And so I think, you know, Biden is a very, you know, has a long career. And, and when he was in the Senate was very important to US foreign policy. And so I think he's probably trying to thread the needle as best as he can, but I, I, I sort of don't buy that they're letting uh, MBS off the hook. Great. Speaking on that, both to you and Victor, um, James, that is, and, and Victor, have we seen any of that uh, in relation to Myanmar, with the recent coup in Myanmar? This is also a question from Amos that was sent in. What's Vic the question, Nick? Clarify the question. Uh, well, have we seen any change in U.S. foreign policy in the recent episode after the coup in Myanmar? I think James knows more about this. Has uh, I think President Biden has spoken out quite forcefully, right, James? And yeah, about Hong I mean, Kong, they've repudiated. Yeah, they've repudiated the the coup. Um, you know, they've 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 are they've said that there needs to be the restoration of democratic rule. I think, you know, this is one of those things where everything is very dicey right now because of how it's unfolding. But I think what will help the United States is the fact that there's so much opposition within Myanmar. 
Um, and and one of the things that you know Biden may have learned from Obama's presidency because Obama was president during the Arab uh, Arab Spring is sometimes when the United States isn't really loud about something that's a really loud response, right? So you know when Hosni Mubarak was basically just completely losing control in Egypt, the Obama administration was more or less silent, and that was deafening. I think. Um, in, in terms of where that meant Obama stood. And so I think one of the things that Biden may be thinking about is letting this thing kind of play itself out domestically and seeing if the military might come around or move forward to reinstall the democratically elected government without the US having to do so much to make sure that that happens. But I could be wrong about that. Right, so Victor, if you don't feel like uh, you can speak to this issue, Jim um, brought up a question in chat here. To what extent do you feel like the Republicans have an incentive to, uh, to, to compromise with Democrats on anything um, of any of the uh, policy issues that we've just been discussing, also relating back to the filibuster question, if they don't really have a leg legislative agenda themselves? Well, I don't know. It's hard to know if they have a legislative agenda. I mean, it looks like obstructionism, but nuance might reveal that they do have an agenda. I'm not I don't know what it is, but I assume each each of these senators has to run for re-election at some point and they have their ear to the ground in terms of what their constituents want. So that would motivate them to seek positions that are close to their constituents and maybe further away from the median Democratic legislator or even the most conservative one, uh, like Manchkin, for example. So I guess the premise of the question, I'm just wor uh, not worried, but um, I'm wondering, what's the lack of agenda? Well, Victor, they were in power for four years. What, what was the agenda that they pushed for the four years that they were in power, or even just for the first two years that uh, Trump had a majority in the Senate and the House? They tried to overturn Obamacare. They couldn't do that. They got the tax cuts. That's it. What, what, what else can you, what else did Trump run on? Or did McConnell run on? What is their agenda? I mean, I don't know what their agenda is because I'm not a Republican operative. All I know is that they must have one because they have to run for re-election. And we're talking the Senate, aren't we? We're yeah, talking. But you don't have to have an agenda to win an election. You just have to be more popular than the other the other guy. Well, that's an agenda. I mean, okay, so you're saying on policy. They might not have clear preferences on some policies, so it's really hard to compromise because then exactly. there's no divisibility. Exactly. We'd have to go policy by policy, right? I think on the uh, stimulus plan, they're more fiscally conservative, so they want less spending. Whether that's sincere or strategic is a different issue, but I think they want a smaller package that's more targeted and maybe means tested. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't have to take them at their word. Maybe it's just the way they think they're going to win. But that already has made a big splash because uh, President Biden is backtracking on some of the targeting stuff and, and uh, making it, in fact, a little bit more progressive when the fade out of the benefits occurs at uh, lower uh, uh, income thresholds, I think. Um, Right. And they can become real deficit hawks overnight against allegedly if, if inflation does increase or if there's some other shock to the economy. Right. A absolutely. Like they and did with Obama after, you know, 2010 and the Tea Party. I think there's a big difference between the impetus behind an agenda and what the agenda is. Right. And it could be that it's uh, all about obstructionism or it could be 
I'm a fiscal hawk for a day, or all of a sudden I'm worried about the uh, um, the U.S. debt and the budget deficit. But whatever the source of that, if that's the agenda, that's the agenda. And I could see that being the agenda that's driving negotiations now on the stimulus package, right? So that would just be one dimension. On immigration, they're more hawkish, obviously, more restrictionist. On um, trade, ironically, more protectionist in some ways. On the environment, more uh, uh, laxer on the environment, but not necessarily 100% just get rid of all um, restrictions or regulations. I think it's more nuanced. It depends on the senator and the state, right? Um, but we'd have to do an analysis state by state if we wanted to think about the agenda of the senators. Uh, my bigger point is whatever the agenda is, I think compromise is good for the country. Uh, I, I just think it's good for democracy and it's good for our country. Um, because it creates fewer myopic perspectives in that we got to win everything now and get our way now, and then it'll just be reversed the next cycle when someone else is in the majority. That's what I meant by Westminster, James. But that's, that's the what Westminster... a democracy is, Victor. You win this I time, disagree. you impose your I dis policy. Policies, you know, that's... I lose, and then you you impose your policies. That's, that's the, how it works. That's the Westminster system, not our system historically. Victor, the state of California is already compromising with the state of Rhode Island and Wyoming by virtue of the fact that they all only have two senators. That's the compromise. Wyoming gets as much say in the Senate as California. That's the compromise. The compromise is not then that the party with the majority has to compromise even further. That's just not how things should work. Okay, but that's a fundamental normative disagreement, and it's instrumental in that I have a hypothesis that more compromise is good for democracy and other outcomes. That should be tested with data. You're saying there's a threshold effect where we reached enough compromise because of the compromise that's built into federalism, and I'm saying I'd like even more compromise. I guess I'm saying I don't really have a ceiling on compromise, the more the better. And that's just the disagreement. And I do disagree, though, fundamentally, that some democracies have more compromise and some less. Again, just not to beat a dead horse, the Westminster system has less compromise and it's more about volatility and oscillation between extremes. Our system historically, for better or worse, has been about more compromise and pluralism. The filibuster for all its ugliness is one of those tools. It's not the only one. And maybe we could replace it with the more effective one. That's a separate issue. Okay, let's get away from this really quickly and let's branch into a related area. We have a question from Damien who's asking about a similar lack of representation and, and what the government's going to do or going to have to do at large. Uh, he asks, how should or will the U.S. accommodate for increasingly leftist young millennial and Gen Z who are dissatisfied with the current system, even to the point of overturning it? Well, hopefully they won't. <laughs> I mean, Biden won't. That's for sure. I think what's interesting to me is, you know, I think you look at the sort of the Bernie movement from 2016 and you look at um, you look at sort of the rise of the squad in AOC. But it's I mean, how interesting to think that Biden was then the nominee of the Democratic Party. The median Democratic voter is not what Damien just described at all. Um, and that's important to remember. The other thing to remember is that um, that there are a lot of uh, communities of color in this country that consider themselves conservative, but also consider themselves Democrats. And that is a constituency that the Democratic Party could easily lose if they try to govern from the, the far left, which they're not gonna do. Um, I think the, the bigger question for Biden is sort of, what is the future of the Democratic Party? 
number one, does he decide to run again in four years? If he doesn't, he has to make that clear two, in two years. And then if he does, if he does that, then he's basically a lame duck. Um, if he doesn't and he runs again, you know, th that runs the risk of him really running out the clock on, on his ability to govern and, and people being worried about his age. But is he going to deputize somebody like a Kamala Harris, who's much more um, kind of in the center and much more about kind of getting stuff done? Or is the squad and the AOC and the far left wing going to um, somehow move it in that direction? I don't think they will, but I think that tension is definitely going to be there for sure. So maybe we can tie that into to Joe's question. He asks, if parties run not on an agenda and more on a list of cultural preferences or touch points, what does that mean for the future of politics? So maybe branching on what you just said, if they do shift that direction and it becomes more about addressing cultural differences or age differences or cohort differences, what will that look like uh, for the Democratic Party and for the United States as a whole? Well, I don't think the Democrats are as comfortably winning certain age cohorts and certain minority cohorts as they think they are and that they used to win. Um, so I think they have to, I don't think they can assume that they're gonna just win culturally because there's been cultural change on certain types of issues over the last 20 years. Um, Victor, what do you think? I totally agree with that. James, you shared some data from David Shore yesterday. Do you want to parrot some of what we learned from that data? No, I mean, if you want to go ahead, but. From what I remember, there was a rude awakening during this uh, election. Yes, President Biden won. But in terms of some of these House um, races, the Democrats did really poorly. They underperformed with minority groups. And um, if you scratch the surface, what it reveals is that, as you said, there's a lot of minority groups. I would talk about Latinos, if you'd like, a group I know a lot about. Uh, the distribution doesn't seem to be radically different than that of white people or just the country in general. In that there's most people are in the middle, some people are on the left, and some people are on the right. Uh, it doesn't seem that the distribution of uh, preferences ideologically or culturally is shifted to the left. In other words, if you imagine a bunch of bell curves, they're all overlapping between these groups. So if that's true, then the Democrats can move as far left as they want, but they're going to lose. Right. Gonna... And, and, and what the data show is that, you know, the, the Biden won off of the basically off of the white vote shifting from what it was um, in 2016. So he won more white college educated people and he won. He, there was a slight shift in non-college educated white people. But he actually lost Latino support and he lost African-American support from where Hillary was in 2016. And that, I mean, that's totally the opposite narrative that people are saying right now, right? Which is that the white vote went for for Trump and the minority vote was comfortably democratic. Those those stands are shifting, I think, particularly in states that matter a lot for Democrats to win. I believe Trump uh, obtained the highest vote share of uh, African-Americans in a long time, short of, uh, for Republicans, that is obviously not President Obama or other Democrats, but for Republicans, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's another one of the things we learned from the map. Am I correct, James? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I think Bush, in, you know, George W. Bush was the last one in, in 2004. Victor, will you quickly say something about um, why the immigration issue is not working as well for the Democrats uh, among Latino voters in states like Florida and Texas as it is among sort of white coastal liberal voters? Well, the generational gap matters a lot. If you're second, third generation Latino, 
yes, your roots are in the motherland, but your problems are in the here and now in your community. Uh, and there's distributional conflict sometimes. It's like, well, what am I thinking about as a US citizen, you know, one or two generations removed? Uh, I might have different preferences about education, about jobs, about healthcare. Um, and uh, I might want to um, lift that ladder up and not let other people go up the rungs, right? Um, that allowed me to get in. So if you think about the border uh, patrol, if you go to border uh, um, uh, communities in Texas, for example, most of the border patrol, if not 100%, are Latino people of Latino extraction. Um, and uh, their communities support the border patrol because it's a huge source of employment. And so it's not necessarily the case that um, we're in the same identity group or, or we have a shared fate if you think about again, second, third generation Latino folks in Texas. Or if you think about Florida, obviously Cuban Americans are right of center because of the history with Castro. But a, a lot of uh, influx of Latinos from Colombia, Venezuela, and other parts of South America are also, let's say centrist or center right because of the history of socialism or whatever you might call experiments um, in more government control of the economy that went haywire and ended up uh, really uh, ruining economies or at least are responsible for refugee flows. If you think of Venezuela, 5 million people have fled the Chavez and Maduro regime. So it's just, it's really complicated. James, um, sorry, do you think there are any other reasons uh, that Democrats have underperformed with minorities? Nancy wants to know. I, I think there's, you know, I think there could be a lot. I, 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 I think appeals to identity, we assume, are always going to work for the groups to whom you are appealing that identity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that can work, but I don't think it necessarily works for some of the reasons Victor just said, which is, you know, white liberals may hear racist language in Trump's immigration policy or the way he talks about Im immigrants. But people who are recently have emigrated recently to the United States may just not be listening to that or they just may not care because they may care about other issues. And so this idea that the Democrats have that all appeals to identity are going to somehow redound to their benefit because of the changing demographic landscape of this country, I just don't think is true. And I think Biden is a good representation of that. Will Kamala Harris help with that? Sorry. Well, well I, I, I think the mosaic that? of the leadership, I think the mosaic of the Democratic Party is, you know, you have all sorts of, you know, all sorts of people from all different places. It's a very deep bench of talent. Absolutely. But I think the thing is, is how do you win with voters? And, do you, are, you know, Kamala Harris is not going to get every Asian American or or Black American or every woman to vote for her simply because she's a woman and Asian American and Black. And, and so is she going to then run as a black, you know, Asian American woman on her on the platform of identity versus on one of policy? And what does that actually look like? I just don't I, I, I think the idea that I appeals to identity help Democrats always is, is just not true. One of the other aspects you're speaking to here is about demographic change, COVID and a few of the other recent trends in the American economic and political markets have seen interstate uh, mobility rise. And Bree asked the question as to whether you think individuals moving closer to home or away from 
centers of, of large cities will have a large impact on the economic geography of America going forward. And I would add to that the political geography. Do you think these could have um, a say in the future of American electoral system and also on the economy in post-COVID world? Yes, I think it'll make things less polarized. The, the coast will become less expensive and folks will be able to move in from the interior of the country and folks fleeing, whether it's true or not, by the way, I don't know, but they say high taxes or crime or whatever they say they're fleeing. I don't see it here. I'd love to stay in Seattle the rest of my life. But if they're leaving for, let's say, from California to Texas or Idaho, they're going to change the conversation, the preferences, the mix of policies, the debate and what have you. I think it'll be good because things are so stratified geographically, politically, and ideologically. And a lot of that has to do with cost of living on the coast, the fact that uh, it's really hard to buy a home and settle a family, get a good paying job if you're blue collar. Um, and likewise, there's been a disconnection, as James is intimating, with coastal elites that just don't know their fellow citizens in the heartland, right? Uh, and it might lead them to be a little bit aloof and different, condescending, whatever it is, out of touch. I think it's a good thing. James, and what do you think? And read down positively. Let's keep moving. All right. Um, okay. So Linda wants to know, uh, moving a little bit away from the COVID topic, um, are alt-right groups as big as, as big of a threat as they are portrayed currently? Yeah, I mean, if you believe Christopher Ray, absolutely, and he's the FBI director for that. That is what he testified that they are the biggest source of of threat to uh, domestically from terrorism, mm -hmm. meaning they're a bigger threat than Al Qaeda. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, right wing extremism and terrorist violence has been in this nation's fabric for a, a really long time. Uh, obviously, Merrick Garland was there at prosecuting McVeigh in the 90s with the Oklahoma City bombing i i think you know a you know a small group of very dedicated violent and well-armed people can do a lot of damage to this country and i think one of the things one of the things that's becoming apparent is the ability of some of these networks yes some of them operate online and, and coordinate online but a lot of them the the really serious uh, threatening ones actually take a lot of it offline and are able to potentially uh, not only cause a lot of damage, but just be there as a threat. And the problem is, that, you know, much like if you think of Al Qaeda at a global level, what is the real root of Al Qaeda? However you answer that question, it's not important to me. What is the real root of right-wing extremism in the United States? However you answer that question, how do you get rid of that? Right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's been around for so long that it's hard to imagine that you would ever really get rid of it. And so you're constantly going to be um, living under the threat that this is going to be a potential problem as it has been and I think as it will be. So I think it's a huge threat. So it doesn't sound like we've uh, or this country has taken the right steps to prevent things like this from happening again in the past. Do you think that there are any uh, like meaningful steps being taken at the moment to avoid uh, things like that repeating in the future? Well, I think prosecuting everyone involved in January 6th, in, insofar as there's evidence that they've committed a crime and that you know a prosecutor takes up the case is absolutely important. I mean, reestablishing the rule of law, holding people to account um, is is this, you know, that that's what the the, the bedrock of this nation's constitutionalism is is built on. So I think, you know, keeping that there is important. 
um, there, there's a question perhaps hidden in that, is which is what do you do with Trump? What do you do with Trump if, if he continues to stoke this and encourage it above and beyond what it would be in the absence of Trump? And you know, should he run for re-election again or even be elected again, then what are you going to do? Given that this is sort of now his base of support, they haven't gone away, they continue to you know, say, sort of say that they're going to support him and he continues to be able to uh, stoke enough resentment among that group of people to rally, you know, rally people to uh, take action and coordinate publicly. Uh, I think that's a good, that's a huge danger for sure. So to follow up on that with you, Victor, Damien asks, are cultist Trumpers and Republicans savable? How do we function in a society where one third of its people live, people live in an alternate reality? Well, look, um, I think it's important not to caricature and demonize people because you just lose them even more than you already have, right? Uh, I think it's unfortunate that people are under the spell of conspiracy theories, misinformation, lies, and propaganda. Um, my own view is that there's two ways of dealing with that. First is to make it less salient. Now, Nick and Beatrice have an amazing paper about their support for populism in Europe, and you guys could correct me here. Isn't one of your fundamental findings that people's preferences about populism or anti-immigration are what they are, but they're less important at some junctures versus others? Is that kind of the crux of it? Beatrice, what do you think? Yeah, so we basically show that preferences for immigration do not change in Italy over time, but their salience, the salience of immigration changes at critical junctures. And it's exactly what you say, Victor. Like if if we have a big event that makes this uh, that pushes this into the center of of the public attention, then certain parties own that issue more than others, and um, will yeah will ultimately uh, be able to to um, have big electoral victories. Although preferences haven't really changed, it's just that everyone votes based on this one issue. So here's my way of analogizing from your findings, which I think are uh, really cool and helpful here. So let's just assume that there's going to be a portion of the population that's going to be susceptible to conspiracy theories, populism, and even right-wing extremism, right? Let's just hope to dampen the appeal and make that like the 150th thing on their list of things they care about rather than the first thing. And hopefully the natural process of Trump losing um, and maybe a... Uh, change or pivot in the Republican Party. I'm not saying they'll abandon Trumpism and populism, but something less uh, explosive, less uh, fascistic, less destructive could mean we'll get a regression to the mean and it'll just be less salient, less important and fade over time. Mm -hmm. My view is these things ebb and flow. And actually giving these things too much attention could backfire and have the opposite result. So I'm just hoping over time, it'll get better. It'll be uh, less sexy or less uh, appealing. Uh, there'll be fewer flashpoints to uh, animate it or, or to inflame it. And we can just move on. Um, that's my own view. It might be Pollyannish and it might be that there's no such thing and it's just stuck at where it is. But from what I understand the history of this country, and I've learned a lot from uh, Professor Chris Parker here in our department, is that these things do ebb and flow. And you do see um, historical roots like the Know Nothing Party and some of the um, 
uh, paranoid fringe stuff that you got after um, during the Nixon administration and so on, right? And so I'm just hoping that this thing has flared up, but it'll also flare down uh, the same way. And a lot of it is just not uh, giving it undue attention and, and hoping that when there's a recovery economically, when we're out of this pandemic, when there's more reasonable candidates that win elections on that side of the aisle, we'll just get a change in the conversation. Hopefully James will call me naive and push back though. No, no, I actually want to share some data and a very controversial take, which is I don't think Donald Trump has ever been weaker politically than he is in this moment. I, I think he has no future in the Republican Party, absolutely none. Because just like Donald Trump, the Republican Party is purely transactional. Okay, so CPAC last weekend, entirely built to be this Trump rally. Okay, entirely, you know, the, the golden calf of him and all the rest of it. First of all, I watched his speech. He was low energy. Well, I don't understand why. What has he been doing? Playing golf? Um, he, you know, he didn't do his job when he was president. He doesn't even have a job now. So why, why was he low energy? And he was boring. You know, he's only interesting insofar as he's selling television. And he, he was boring. Um, only 55% of the CPAC attendees picked him first to be the nominee for 2024. In the straw poll, you mean, right? In the straw poll. So this big boogeyman, this big, oh, he's got the, the whole Republican Party wrapped around his finger. He barely had half of CPAC wrapped around his finger. Now you say, oh, but James, 95% of them supported um, the GOP advancing Trump's agenda. Right. But the difference between 95% of them supporting his agenda and 55% of them picking him first means that there is a lot of room for somebody to come in and take over from him. And so I really don't believe this idea that he's got the party wrapped around his finger. And remember in 2016, he barely won. He, he, he was just over 50% of the delegates needed going into the convention. You know, he was everybody's first or second choice, but actually a lot of people didn't want him. And a lot of people now are even saying, you know what, we like we like the agenda, whatever that means, but we're not, we wouldn't be sad to see a DeSantos or a Nikki Haley or somebody else come in and run. So I, I, I just don't believe that he's somehow that strong of a force in, in the Republican party. Um, and, and, you know, he didn't look like he was having a good time at CPAC. He was listless, he was bored, he was repeating himself. It just wasn't interesting. He's boring. And I know that's hard to believe, but he, you know, I think we just, there, there has to be a, a, a point at which we're ready to move on. That said, he might be a stand-in for these culture wars. And I, my reading of Trump is he's an avatar for a pushback against so-called cancel culture. And yeah, but Victor, anybody can fill that role. I mean, there's, you know, any Republican can say that and half of the Democrats can say that they're that person. So I, I, I just, you know, I think they're going to toss him. I think they're going to go in a different direction. He's a loser, too. He lost them the White House, the Senate, and the House. Why Why would you go with that guy again? Right. The only thing I'd say, though, to go back to the question about QAnon and conspiracy theories, I do wonder if he's a big part of it, and as he fades, if we're correct about the in, in our prediction, that the appeal of the conspiracy theories will also fade from the scene. That, that was my bigger point, and I think you're yeah. supporting it with the CPAC data. That could be true, yeah. So if you, if Trump fades, but Trumpism remains, do you think the next candidate to take up his mantle will be more competent in passing some of these nativistic policies, these populist policies, or do you think they'll shift more towards the center? Well, what is Trumpism? Great question. I mean, are we just describing the median Republican voter? 
I would say that the focus on a lot of these more conspiratorial, less policy-driven, and more culturally sensitive issues put in the center of the platform is something that the centrist Republicans are not necessarily as fond of as some of the- No, 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 no. Look, 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 look. The bizarre and manufactured terror of communism, okay, that pulse in American life, which is now expressing itself in different ways, but is the same sort of paranoia of things from the outside, has been a bedrock part of the Republican Party for decades. So that's always been there, if that's what we mean by Trumpism. Second of all, the alignment of evangelical white Christians and the Republican Party has basically more or less been set now for a few decades as well. So those people are going to vote. If Satan were a Republican, they would vote for him. If it's Nikki Haley, if it's Donald Trump, they're going to vote for whatever that is. So if that's what you mean by Trumpism, you're just talking about the Republican Party. If you're talking in the, the, the sort of conspiracy and belief and all these things has been there on the right and supporting the Republican Party for a while. Now, there's other things on the left and they support the Democrats. But if we're just talking about kind of the average Republican voter, Donald Trump was selected by the party because they're the, the party wanted him the most. And there, I think they'll toss him and pick somebody who they think will be a winner. But I don't think the Republican Party has fundamentally changed that much under Trump. And I don't think it's going to radically change after he's gone. I think this is what the Republican Party is and has been for decades. Morgan, I have a take on what you said. I think policy-wise, the Republican Party has actually shifted towards the center if you think about fiscal matters and trade and maybe immigration and that they were totally uh, very liberal towards immigration for business reasons and economic reasons. I don't know, just like eight years ago. So I actually do think in terms of just looking at certain policies, there has been a shift towards the center, if if you call that Trumpism. Uh, you know, shorn of the demagoguery and the xenophobia and whatever, if you just think about, well, more um, autarky economically in terms of higher tariffs on Chinese imports and less globalization. If you think about the, uh, let's come out and just say that we're fine with budget deficits and spending more domestically on infrastructure and even um, social safety net stuff. Uh, maybe it has a racial component if, if it, in that it might be uh, geared towards uh, the white supporters of the Republican Party or whatever. But um, at least if you think about on paper, there has been a shift towards centrism where there's a lot more agreement between Democrats and Republicans on these policy issues. Now, when it comes to the cultural stuff and when it comes to nativism and the like, obviously they're more spread apart. And that's where I think there's a lot of uh, room for um, disagreement and conflict in the lake. You shift gears here one more time. Uh, Beatrice wants to know, and some other people have also um, asked similar questions. Uh, There's a growing opposition against big tech companies in the United States. Uh, And in general, there's some opposition towards technological innovation, automation and the like, alongside support for policies that are expressly designed to inhibit technological process, uh, progress, such as uh, taxes, bans or regulations and stuff like that. Uh, is this concern warranted? And what is Biden doing to do going to do about this? Oh, yeah. Now we're talking about the left's belief in conspiracy theories, lies and all the rest of it. <laughs> Victor, why don't you take this one? Uh my own take is it's a solution in search of a problem. 
demonizing big tech and looking to uh, break it up. What is it supposed to solve? Is it supposed to solve polarization, conspiracy theories, um, the fact that people distrust each other and there's a lot of, um, I don't know, uh, even hate between people of different parties or different groups? I, I, I don't think big tech is the reason for that. Um, if it if we're talking about the economy, big tech has been the bright star in the economy, especially since the COVID problem. Um, if we're thinking about the future uh, gains that we're going to have in terms of economic growth, employment, and prosperity, it's going to be technology driven. It's going to be this thing I call the fourth industrial revolution. I'm not the only one. I'm using the term uh, the way others have to think about artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things smart automation that complements skilled labor uh, and a more educated workforce. So yeah, at the margin, there are things we can do with the tools we have like antitrust, like regulations around section 230. If we're worried about so-called algorithmic amplification, making some conspiracy theories worse. But the fact is big tech has actually responded to a lot of those challenges. For example, by deplatforming former president Trump or by Google deciding not to have its cookies follow you around from website to website when it came to a backlash in terms of privacy. This is something they adopted yesterday, or at least um, came out and said that they're serious about it. So I, I don't understand the obsession with big tech. I don't understand exactly what the problem is. And I do think if there are certain problems, you can deal with them surgically on a step-by-step -step basis using the tools you already have. Uh, which have been quite helpful since the advent of social media, digital platforms, cloud computing, and the like. And, and if you want to demonize something like Amazon, let's say, I don't understand Amazon is saving the U.S. economy in a lot of ways by uh, employing a lot of people, by delivering groceries and medicine during the pandemic immediately, um, same-day deliveries, uh, by uh, leading to the drastic price reductions across the board and maybe keeping inflation at bay when um, fiscal and monetary policy has been a lot looser for good reason, because we're looking to stimulate the economy. So if you're talking about specific policies that large tech can influence the conversation today, we have Megan from Spokane asks, what responsibility does social media have in controlling COVID-related information? I know you've discussed how splitting up these companies could actually make this worse. Maybe you can talk us through what responsibility you think they have and how it could make it worse if we do follow through with some of the proposed policies. Well, James and I had a couple of op-eds and, and uh, podcasts on the idea that sometimes users on platforms do things that are bad for other users, like spread conspiracy theories. Maybe they get you know, their jollies out of it and they get all, all excited and um, about, you know, discussing things that are controversial or polemical or just totally false. But once that message spreads onto other people, it could go viral and it could be really bad for democracy or bad for vaccines, uh, up, up, uh, uptake um, or other things like that. If that's the case, then you have to think about how you make people internalize the costs of their own misinformation or their spread of lies or conspiracy theories. And there's a lot of different tools to use. One thing you could do is make big tech or, or social platforms liable in, as distributors for some of the content. And so they'd have an incentive to clean up some of the information that's shared. 
Right now, they don't have distributor liability, or at least Section 230, which gives them immunity from prosecution uh, um, or from um, liability for libel or defamation, is interpreted as also covering distribution. But if somehow you tweak that, maybe they would be a little better at making sure things don't spiral out of control. But another thing you could do is make the individual users bear the cost of their bad behavior, of their behavior that spills over. And the way to do that would be to have higher costs to them spreading misinformation, like having to, let's say, listen to a public service announcement about how conspiracy theories are bad and, and suck up a lot of time they would otherwise be using spreading these lies. Or let's say taxing some of the more sensationalist content that spreads online and that, uh, let's say, YouTube might select and might um, suggest to certain users. So there's just a lot of tools from political economy you can use that are short of busting up big tech or doing drastic things, things at the margin that increase the cost of uh, spreading misinformation, for example. James, what are your thoughts on this? I want to make sure we get through the, the rest of the questions. Okay, so uh, Joe is immediately following up here. Uh, does big tech help the global economy or just a few uh, or just a select few such as the US uh, at the cost of other economies? I think there's this idea that, you know, there's like 10 billionaires in Menlo Park that, you know, when we talk about how when we start adding up the, you know, what Amazon is worth and Facebook and the rest of it being in the trillions of dollars, that it's like 10 people that are making all this money. But in fact, Big tech is innovating ways that um, you know, AI can be developed in rural parts of the United States to improve the delivery of agricultural products to markets or to improve the inputs of agriculture and supply chains and the rest of it. And so, you know, I think reading the newspaper, it's so focused on these individual, you know, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of it, but it's not looking at all the ways that big tech is actually innovating ways that, that affect our lives that we may not even know about. And I'll say, you know, AI algorithms can be used to improve the way that people find available appointments to get vaccine distributions, right? Facebook may be a place that people spread misinformation about COVID, but it's also Facebook groups that are now um, having their users be able to uh, identify older people in communities and sign them up to get a vaccine. And so I think, you know, I, I'm not going to say that everything just trickles down. It doesn't. But what I am saying is that big tech, the application and what big tech has innovated on, I think, affects our lives in ways that we may not understand and, and is helping grow the economy in ways that we may not appreciate as well. Victor, I'm sure you have opinions on this. I, I do have case. opinions. Okay. Are, do you want to make room for other uh, topics or do you want me to round this out? Or what are, what are your thoughts? I think we should go to remaining questions. Let's right. go to remaining questions. All right, I would just say we have a lot of podcasts on this if anyone's interested. <laughs> That's uh, a so great plug. Go and listen. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's do a couple of quick ones. Um, Damien wants to know, James, is the U.S. still a democracy? Is it an oligarchy, a combination, or something else entirely? Um, it's a democracy-ish. Well, I mean, it's a republic, technically, but it's it's more or less a democracy, yeah. All it right. could improve. It could definitely improve. Okay. Uh, are there any voting reforms that you are favoring that you think are necessary? Or is voting reform necessary? Or uh, can the U.S. remain a democracy without having big 
uh, election reform? Well, I think there's two questions. One is we shouldn't restrict voting. I mean, so so there's mm -hmm. two there's two directions that this could go in. Do you improve it? Which you should. Basically, my my idea is that the place where it is easiest to vote in the United States, everywhere in the United States, it should be that easy. Okay, mm -hmm. so if you if it's mail in voting in Washington and that's the answer, everywhere should be that easy. Um, but we also want to prevent the United States from going in the other direction, which is placing further restrictions or impositions on people doing it. We don't want that. And that's a real danger right now in the next few years. Two things I'm excited about, ranked choice voting, where you can vote for several people. You rank the prefer uh, your candidates according to your preferences. So there's no wasted votes. It might motivate more turnout. Another thing it does, it creates incentives for politicians or candidates, I mean, to be nice to each other. And the reason is they don't want to alienate the core supporters of the other uh, of their competitors, because if you're ranking choices, let's say candidate A, if, if candidate A says something nasty about candidate B, uh, then you might not actually um, rank candidate B as your second choice when uh, ranking candidate A as your first choice. You might have a memory about the way they, they spoke to each other and treated each other as a voter. And therefore they have incentives to moderate, compromise, get along, seek common ground. And rather What's than- you in compromise, Victor? Come I on. Think it's Don't what you we have need. a Machiavellian part of you that just wants when you're- That's side exactly why govern? I think compromise is good, James, because I know myself too well. <laughs> if, I, if you give me unabridged power, it, it would be, it, it would lead in bad directions. So anyway, ranked choice voting. And the other thing I'd say that I've warmed up to is compulsory voting. If everybody voted, I think that you'd get the median voters revenge and you'd get more centrism. Uh, and I think that would be good for a, a, a variety of things um, that I've already kind of alluded to in the today. Uh, I won't use the word compromise, but I'll say more centrism on uh, culture issues and economically as well. And I think that would be good. Speaking of compromise, we have a question from Linda who asks about state and federal differences. And she asks, in the face of state-level failures to protect their citizens, is there anything that the federal government can do to help? And she references specifically the Texas power grid failures and Mississippi and Texas's openings despite insufficient COVID vaccinations. Well, I'll just say two things. One, yes. I mean, I think it matters that there that even despite Abbott's decision to get rid of the mask mandate, that there is a countervailing political force, which is President Biden, who I think called said it was a Neanderthal approach to take. And so I think having contradictory messages, if I'm a, a citizen in Texas, um, is a good thing because then it counteracts that narrative. And, and when Trump was in office, there wasn't that narrative, right? And, 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 and people like Fauci and Burks were, were sort of uh, kept down as much as possible. So I think just having a, a president who counteracts that narrative is good. The second thing is, is recognize how much the Biden administration is trying to do with federal programs to actually push a lot of its agenda to the state level. So the fact that um, teachers now, uh, I think it was 30 states already had teachers being preferenced, 20 states didn't. The Biden administration is a federal program that is going to push those teachers to get vaccinated. So there is a lot that the federal government can do. Um, the, the energy grid is a separate issue altogether because that is deregulated and, and run by Texas. But, you know, I think, you know, that's that's what Texans that's what Texans voted for. And that's when the market actually worked perfectly. That's exactly how markets are supposed to work. Supply is supposed to equal demand. And they just didn't know that there was going to be a shock in demand so that there had to be, you know, attending supply. But that's what happens when you deregulate markets to that level. 
Well, yeah, especially markets where reliability matters just as much as price and efficiency, right? And so when it comes to energy, you also want reliability. And that that was the problem in Texas. That and the fact they didn't they did not weatherize the system the way they should have, because it seemed like it was a 200 or 250 year event when in fact maybe the probability of this stuff is higher due to climate change and the like, right? One thing I'll say about federalism, both the left and the right, there's a tradition on the left and the right that agrees that federalism is the so-called laboratory of democracy. It was uh, Justice Louis, Louis Brandeis, a Supreme Court justice on the left, a progressive that said this to coin the term. But on the right, you have uh, folks that also think that the experiments that federalism allows are good because there's a lot of learning you can do and a lot of um, best practices that can be followed, like California with emission standards or environmental protection or we're leading the charge in other areas. Uh, some say privacy, right? So I think federalism is one of the things that keeps our democracy moving, vibrant, dynamic, and changing and adapting. And the more federalism there is, it's a good thing. And there was um, this myth for a while that it was bad for progressive causes and the like. But during the Trump administration, I think there was a refound appreciation by people on the left in cities and in, in the coast for federalism, for experimentation, and for the ability to. to to dissent from federal regulations and federal uh, policies. And, and I will say, getting back to Bree's question earlier, you know, people can vote with their feet. You know, if citizens of Texas don't like this, they can leave Texas. And maybe that will inspire the, the government in Texas to do a better job, or they can stay and vote for something different and say, look, we don't want this to happen again. We're gonna hold you accountable and we're gonna, um, we're gonna bring people into power who are gonna promise to do something different. You can imagine if the United States was just one state you, you wouldn't have those options. It would be much harder to, to try to figure that out. And so that is kind of one of the benefits of the system too. Um, and it puts, a, you know, it does put the onus on the individual to decide where they want to live, but it also doesn't restrict it. We don't all live in the same state. Look at we that, James. You, you and I agreed on an element of democracy that's good. And we didn't have to disagree about the virtues of compromise. So this is good. I would say we've compromised and I hate to say it, but uh, there are some things that I think, uh, are really good for democracy. And I'm very heartened by the fact that federalism is becoming something that there's a broad consensus about. Uh, and maybe that's one thing that we could look at as a silver lining in all the chaos and confusion and, and uh, 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 controversy of the last few years. Well, maybe we can have a discussion about federalism um, on the next podcast, because I do know some people who have a bit of a different opinion on this. Um, Wait, not myself which included. Is, which is what? Well, you're, this is you're not a threat. Don't worry. Don't worry. But uh, it will be a cordial conversation. Well, no. So what's the take in Germany? That federalism is, is bad? I don't know. I, I wasn't talking about Germans. Don't you well, worry. go ahead. Tell us what you think, Nick. Say <laughs> it. No, I mean, I think there are some um, people who argue in like a progressive tradition who say that, you know what, uh, for, for a lot of people in the United States, federalism has mainly meant the uh, the right of states to discriminate against people um, or to, to break with federal laws in ways that weren't um, positive for people. But that's and, a strong you know, thing, Nick. Everyone yeah, exactly. They should, yeah, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Like if they're breaking the law, they shouldn't do that. They should not use federalism as a weapon to discriminate against people. Right. It, of course it, not. It, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding me. Go ahead. Um, they were uh, the the federal state was unwilling to um, uh, to to uphold constitutional rights, for example, on the state level 
uh, granting them the uh, the freedom to to deviate from from federal law effectively. Well, they shouldn't do that. Or if there is a conflict between the two, there should be a procedure that, that sorts that out. It's called the Supreme Court or it's called amendments to the Constitution or the legislature with civil rights, right? Well, there, I'm in an awkward position because I, because I agree with you. So uh, okay. I'm well, not we sure should have a, we, we should have an this, yeah. antagonist that really is going to argue <laughs> exactly. this point logically. Or, or it's and, 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 and let me say something too controversial, right? So, because I think, Nick, what you're trying to get at is slavery, right? You're trying to get at the fact that... Well, course, yeah, but that's, that's sort of the most it, extreme version. But I mean, this is not just uh, this is not just a matter of like, uh, yeah, slavery, like things that have been... Uh, going on a long time ago, but rather like very recent events, right? Okay, but the thing the thing is, is that the federal structure both allowed slavery as well as abolition, right? And so that's what people have to. I mean, that kind of gets to the the bigger point that Victor is making is that you you know obviously slavery was horrific and wrong, and obviously a better a better outcome would have been for the Constitution to have explicitly not allowed slavery. But the Constitution wouldn't have come into existence, and the thirteen colonies wouldn't right. have joined. That just wasn't going to happen. So the compromise was that the Constitution doesn't explicitly actually legalize or make it illegal to have slaves. It leaves it to the states. But then states that were you know basically pressured by abolitionists to not have slavery then change their state constitutions to not allow for slavery right yeah and so and, and so you know there was a better way to do it but the federal way provided openings to deal with this issue in ways that you know had it been decided differently there it may not have happened right and also i mean i think that the strongest argument is, is effectively like a synthesis of what uh, victor and you are saying which is the more you centralize, the higher are the stakes, right? So like, sure, you can get everything just right if you have it uh, perfectly centralized, uh, centralized uh, decision-making body, but you can also, yeah, make them horribly wrong and then don't have this uh, opportunity to vote with your feet. Uh, Victor, do you want to, um, yeah, give us some final thoughts on this issue and then we'll close? Well, I would say if there was this positive evidence that federalism was the cause of slavery full stop, then yes, then maybe the downside risk is so bad that a lot of all these marginal improvements you get from federalism and experimentation would not be worth it. But it just seems to me the cause wasn't federalism. It was racism. It was the mm -hmm. economic structure. It was colonialism. Uh, it was all these other things. Uh, but, you know, maybe I, we're wrong. And I would I would change my mind if, if uh, that was shown to be the case, by the way. Um, so it could be that we're operating under a false premise, and mm -hmm. I would be the first to admit that. The other thing about um, federalism, though, is it allows for more democracy in some ways, in some ways less if it's, uh, you know, a tyranny of the majority or even the minority uh, violating civil rights or, or terrorizing uh, um, citizens, right? Obviously, that's bad and that uh, goes against the spirit of democracy. But in other ways, Democracy lives and endures and prospers when there's experimentation. Mm -hmm. And the more you're able to do that, the more you're able to, in an evolutionary way, find the best practice, find something that works, and then it can spread. And to use the analogy, it's almost like a mutation. Obviously, it might be concerted and purposive rather right. than random, but that's a good thing. And um Maybe we should have a podcast where we could examine the logic and evidence around this, around other policies. I um, think that would be a good idea, yeah. Yeah. 
let's definitely do that. Uh, James, any closing thoughts? We're all out of questions. No, I'll just say one last thing on federalism, which is that, you know, for 20 years, I've been saying that it would it would do well for the United States to have a nationally administered electoral apparatus that is is responsible for its elections. And that is where I think federalism may show me why that position was wrong, because in 2016, you know, basically to influence or hack an election in the United States, you have to do it at the state level. And I think in 2016, the fact that it wasn't done nationally at least allowed a free and fair vote in most states, even if, you know, there was sort of overall um, there was hacking of the DNC and then there was probably, you know, some some Mickey Mouse things going on in certain states. You know, the fact that that we have a federal system of election, you know, a federalized system of election management may actually protect a lot of states uh, in a lot of ways that I wasn't previously really attuned to. And that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a centralized way that would work better, but it also means that, you know, centralization can go bad as well as it can go good. And if you were to hack at a central level, the whole thing is hacked. Whereas if you have to actually yeah. target it at certain states, then you could protect the system and, and the states that are stronger and the states that have uh, think technology in place that make them stronger, they can then teach the other states how to improve their systems. And so I actually think that that's been the benefit of the United States in protecting its electoral integrity recently. Absolutely. Nick, let me say one final thing. Louis Brandeis, one of the reasons he liked federalism, again, a progressive, um, uh, was because the national government could also adopt things that seem to work at the state level. So they're not necessarily incommensurate. You could make the federal legislation stronger and the central government better if you're if the central government is able to look at what works in some states and adopt best practices or, or things that had success. So again, these are not necessarily um, at cross purposes. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, we really enjoyed everyone's questions. Uh, there was a big turnout. We're pretty proud. And um, yeah, great questions also being sent ahead of time and in the chat. So yeah, thank you very much, everyone. We hope to do this more often. Thank you very much, Victor. Thank you very much, James. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much, of course. Thanks, I just wanna, Yeah, I just want to yeah, add, if anybody has any ideas for future discussions, any topics they'd like us to cover, please feel free to send those to the email or to uh, any of us personally. Exactly. And the email is uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. That's uwpoliticaleconomy, all one word, at political, uh, sorry, uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. There we go. Well, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, yeah, see everyone soon. Thanks, guys.